This is a RomyCast. This podcast was recorded in November of 2021. get tired of being Beatles. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, that's all right. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. This week it is part two of our look at the Beatles' great Abbey Road album with Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps of Blue Rodeo. This is part two. If you haven't listened to part one yet, uh, go back and listen to them in order. You just go to the website romicast.com and you can find find the last episode, part one, where we talk about side one of Abbey Road. Today, we are going to be talking about side two in part two. Uh, Again, the website, romycast.com, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. And if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far in the series. This is the 12th episode of series two, if I'm keeping track correctly. You can find the first 11 episodes of this series as well all 15 episodes of series one right there if you see fit while you're at the website could you please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free most people don't donate I don't donate to every podcast I listen to either, but I can tell you that any donation is much appreciated, and your donation will go towards offsetting the costs of the show, things like web hosting, advertising, some equipment costs. It is a labor of love for me, but if you enjoy the show, please consider a donation to support the show. Fair enough? Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not that much. Just click on the Donate button on the website if you'd like to help out and donate. And along those lines, a big shout-out to Rick Andrade, who sent along a donation recently. Rick, thank you so much for your support. Big thumbs up to you. Uh, If you'd like to make a donation, I'll give you a shout-out as well. Just visit the website, romicast.com. And also, if you don't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. It really does help other people find the show. 
And while you're at the website as well, you can sign up for the Walrus Was Paul semi-regular email blast. Uh, I usually just send something out. It's free of charge. I send it out uh, with a couple of little extra factoids and a heads up as to what's going to be on the, uh, the next episode of the podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Romanuk Paul. That is Romanuk Paul. And that is also a very good way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. You can also do that at the website on any of the individual episode pages. There's a place for you to, to leave comments. And also, if you want to go the Facebook route, uh, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you'll find me on there. So Jim Cuddy is one half of Canada's greatest songwriting teams. Jim and his writing partner, Greg Keeler, have been collaborating and releasing albums since the mid-late 80s. Blue Rodeo's newest record, Many a Mile, their 16th album, is out now. And it's great, and it's available on all streaming services. Blue Rodeo has sold 5 million records, give or take. They've won 12 Juno Awards. Those are Canada's National Music Awards, if you're not familiar with the Junos. They're in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and also have been honored as recipients of the Canadian Governor General's Performing Arts Award. Uh, Colin Cripps has been a full-time member of Blue Rodeo since 2013 and a co-producer and player on all of Jim Cuddy's five solo records. Colin was also in the successful late 80s, early 90s Canadian band Crash Vegas, if that rings a bit of a bell for you. And he has also played with some big names. He's a big name for crying out loud, but he's played with some big names too. Brian Adams, Kathleen Edwards, and Sarah McLaughlin, just to name a few. Gentlemen, welcome back for part two of Abbey Road. Always a pleasure. Pleasure. Now, before we dig into side two, uh, Jim, I, I just mentioned the new Blue Rodeo record that is out. What about another record from the Jim Cuddy band? And uh, I ask that because I know you put out a single a few months back. Uh, when can we look for a Jim Cuddy record? So I guess this goes back two summers now. Two summers ago, when, when I guess all this started, um, I had no idea that Blue Rodeo wanted to make another record. In fact, my understanding was that we were not making another record. So I started writing for a solo record. And Colin and I were in here. We would create our own little bubble in here with Tim Vesley. And we would wrote, wrote a bunch of songs. So I was about, oh my God, I, I was eight songs recorded in. And I had a bunch of other songs too. And then Greg phoned me and or we talked and should make another Blue Rodeo record, which took me by surprise. So I had to kind of accelerate my songwriting and and then focus entirely on the Blue Rodeo record, which we did and and which comes out soon. So my record just just is just in pause. It's uh, I I will f- I I guess it'll come out maybe next fall or something like that. I mean, the Blue Rodeo will tour and then do our summer touring. So I would assume next fall would be about a reasonable time. And, and I'll just start. I've already started writing to finish it. And, um, but it was, it's the first time this has ever happened. Because normally I, I know I've got a year and I'll write a solo record. And then do that and come back to Blue Rodeo. So this took me by surprise that they ended up being concurrent. And, and uh, it was good for my songwriting, that's for sure. But uh, um, 
it'll it'll be some time before it comes out. I, I talked about the the blue rodeo single uh, and had sort of a wistful feeling to it, maybe coming out of out of, out of the pandemic. And Colin, you'd speculated, yeah, maybe a little bit the way we recorded it as well, where you you weren't always in the same room. Um, but your song. Um, it has the single that's out has very much of a what's happening in the world feeling to it as well. How did you know it was me that was crying behind the locked door? I don't cry very much, in fact, not at all, but I know what I was crying for. Lately the walls of my world have been crumbling Letting in all of my blues Oh, I know I'll get through it I just gotta hear some good news the video, uh, dear listener, if you take a look at the video for the song, uh, it's called Good News, it directly references the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I mean, but when I listen to yours, like I look at the line, I guess we'll get through, I guess we'll get through it, just got to hear some good news. You always seem to have, like Paul McCartney, a real vein of no matter what, we'll get through this, there's a vein of optimism. Is that just your sort of default setting? And maybe maybe Colin can even speak. Is that his default setting as a guy to deal with? Is he, you know, is that what we're... It certainly comes through in the songs. Yes, every day is an optimistic day. For, when I'm with Jim, there's nothing but optimism. I think that, you know, I, I think that that song was written, uh, inspired by the, the incredible... A surplus of consideration that was happening during the, that pandemic. So wherever we were before the pandemic started, we were pretty much all leading our own lives. And when the pandemic started, there was all kinds of outreaches that that were showing consideration to each other. People, people, uh, you know, getting uh, email lists to try to help each other if they needed groceries. People greeting each other in the street, driving. I don't know if you drove much during the pandemic, but there was. There were not too many cowgirls, cowgirls and cowboys on the road anymore. Everybody, go ahead after you, after you, and I and I, you know, I I took that to mean that we as a species have an incredible core of resilience in us. That we are being presented with this thing that has shut down our lives, and we've actually found some good in it, and we're going to get through this with our will and our resilience, but. We do need a little help. So yes, I guess that is my default setting because that's what I saw from that. And especially with the Black Lives Matter protests, not the ones, not the burn burn the city down ones, but the ones where people are out getting their heads bashed in by the cops and also risking infection. They had no idea at that point whether they were going to get the virus from somebody beside them, but they were doing it for, for a greater cause, for a higher good. So I thought that was really moving. And I wanted to write the song to acknowledge that, <clears throat> you know, we would we will do this because of all the things I'm witnessing, as long as there's a little bit of hope up there. Well, it's a nice song. Uh, yeah, made me you. smile. Made thank me smile. Made me feel good. The song, the video. Uh, seek it out, uh, dear listener. It's uh, it's called Good News. Uh, that's. This is another song as we delve into side two of Abbey Road. Uh, I defy anybody not to feel happy when they hear this song. It is, it's, uh, it is the most streamed of all Beatles tracks on Spotify. And it's Here Comes the Sun. Here 
Well, I uh, what can you say about this song? It's it's a perfectly constructed. I see it as a folk song. You know, I'm trying to. I always try to think of where was you know where George's influence or impulses. You know, where was it coming from for him to write a song like this? I see it as you know almost like a, an intimate folk song that he obviously had, and he'd also been. Uh, centering his life more around you know the spiritual side of his uh, his beliefs and I, I just think uh, and um, I think as a guitar style song too the other amazing thing about this song is that you know in guitar there are you know um, there are places that are just sort of perfectly formulated for voicings right it's guitar centric you know, you wouldn't have written a song like this on the piano because the way that guitar allows you to do certain things more easily brings out certain characteristics as a as a melodic bass, let's say. And uh, so obviously I see, I hear so much of that in this song, the way that he wrote it. Obviously, uh, um, I'm not sure that... Um, he ever repeated himself in the way that he played the guitar on this song. You know, I don't hear it in any other songs that he wrote, yeah. which is also fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Is he playing a 12 string? No, he's no, playing a six, a six string. string capo though, capoed yeah. up high. Now he did write other song. Okay, he did write one song. You know, he wrote this song earlier that has a slight reminiscence to this because it's also capoed, but he wrote the song, um, If I Needed Someone. And he wrote that obviously on a six string, but recorded it on the Ricky 12 string. And it's capoed quite a ways up to get that sound. So when you listen to Here Comes the Sun, it's the same, it's not, I don't think it's the same capo position, but it suggests the same higher pitched guitar. Capoed on the fifth fret fifth for that fret, song. Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> there you go. No, I, I want to. Yeah. I know that because I listened to the last interview that I did with you and you referenced it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, so that sound is part of his, I think that was part of his landscape. You know, you just could go to that. And and I mean, we do it a lot, you know, mm -hmm. where Jim and will come in with a song and, and you know, it starts on Capo 2 and uh, then we move to Capo 4 and we move it, you know, sometimes we move them around and then that, that, that influences the voicing. Sure. Not just like sure. the literal voice, but the, the musical voice. So sorry to sound like I'm, I'm not talking specifically to Here Comes the Sum that way, but that's, uh, that's really what I hear in that as well. So let me do a little critique on Here Comes the Sun, the most streamed Beatles song of all time uh, on this record, sorry. Um, this is a song to me, like it has a very beautiful, simple core. There's about 12 words to this song. Let's be clear. There's, you know, little darling, it seems like years since it's been here. There's very little to the song other than, other than the, here comes the sun and isn't it nice that it's shining. There's beautiful uh, acoustic accompaniment to his, to his pattern. His pattern suits his voice. And I always liked George's voice. It's just a little tremulous, 
you know, it just wasn't, wasn't, it was never going to fill the same space as John or Paul's. But it, it was, it was kind of sweet because it was a little, little weak, but, you know, nice. And, uh, and then to me, and I'm probably wrong, but all of the dun, sun, sun, here it comes. I doubt George wrote that. I would, that sounds so Paul to me that the, the, the additional pieces of this song, to me, are what make it great. It's a really lovely, simple song at the core of it. But all the voicings and the, the background vocals and the acoustic guitars that, that, that accompany it and the, the little... Oh, the yeah, musical flourishes. Right. The and the sun, 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 here it comes. Here it comes. Sun, 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 here it comes. I don't know. Maybe it was George, and if so, he he really just jumped into the the Beatle uh, harmonic library. I've never but, uh, heard that. Th- that's an interesting. John Lennon didn't work in the song yeah, at his, all. His no, oh yeah, no, it doesn't sound. I mean, it doesn't matter. George, John was completely capable of doing those vocals too. Those guys, the, you know, they their block vocals were the best. It, you know, maybe better than the Beach Boys, to me, but. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they were right up there of the best block vocals there are. So to me, that that's, it's a song again where you know we're talking about credit. George gets a lot of credit for that song. Something I think he deserves. He wrote a beautiful, complex song. Here comes the sun is a very simple folk song, like you mm-hmm. said, and yeah. it's made beautiful by right. the adornments of. All the musicians in the yeah. band, except John, yeah. that work on it. Hmm. Uh, famous story for those of you who don't know it. Uh, written at the time when Apple was getting like school. This is George Harrison. I'm quoting: uh, "We had to go in and be businessmen. Sign this, sign that. Anyway, it seems as if winter in England goes on forever, and by the time spring comes, you really deserve it." So one day, I decided I was going to sag off Apple, and I went over to Eric Clapton's house. The relief of not having to go and see all those dopey accountants and one was one. Wonderful, and I walked around the garden with one of Eric's acoustic guitars and wrote "Here Comes the Sun." Sweet, nice. So that is the story behind it. John Lennon, as I mentioned, doesn't appear on the song. Uh, he was recovering from a car crash that he had had uh, while holidaying up in Scotland with Yoko and his daughter. A couple of nerdy technical things: mixed at fifty-one cycles per second, uh-huh. rather than the usual fifty, reducing slightly the length of the song, and it raised the key by about a quarter tone. Uh, and then when they were making that Martin Scorsese documentary on Harrison, there's a scene in there where mm-hmm. Giles Martin, George yeah. Martin, and Danny, uh, and Danny yeah, are listening to it. And there was uh, uh, an hitherto uh, unheard guitar solo on the song, which was left out of the album mix. Yeah. So. And when you hear it, the. Uh Good choice. Good. Good, good choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they made a lot of good choices was, on this yes. record. Yes. So we we go to cut two on side two, and this was the final song to be recorded for the Abbey Road album, and it was John Lennon's Because. Because the world is round, it turns me on. 
Now, some people say uh, that this has sort of an icy detachedness to it. Um, maybe because of the of the sound of the harmony vocals, or I think it's just the harmonizing is just absolutely phenomenal, mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know why anyone would say that it was icy. My God. No. Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually reassuring, and and you know, I I think Lennon gets away with, you know, how when somebody uses the lexicon of the day and uh, you know feeling groovy or something, you, think, you look back twenty years later, and say, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> he uses it all. He just turns me on, blows my mind, and it's all so appropriate. It's just, I mean, and again, that's just Lennon. He's talking about simple, understood, accepted concepts and how heavy they are. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the essence of psychedelic drugs. That's the essence of psychedelic drugs, looking at the world that you had accepted as being simple and understandable and realizing Every single element is magical and mystical and could never be completely comprehended. And, you know, that's Lennon. Beautiful. Uh, Having got the track, uh, this is George Martin saying, the three boys sang together in harmony, the whole Mm -hmm. song. Uh, Then we overlaid another three voices and another three voices. So we had nine part (laughs) harmony harmony all the way through. Because he says the most complex harmony that they ever worked out. Really? They they suggested that, yeah. Wow. At the time that they, because they had never done that. They I wonder done, how many choirs around the world have, have taken that on. I've tried to figure out that uh, those intervals and beautiful voicings. I mean, there is a, there is, and that might be where the icy comes from because there are some there are some cold fourths in there, and and that that sound. They're not warm and fuzzy like six and thirds. Right. They're they're a little, a little ominous. Mm-hmm. But uh, what else does George Martin say? This particular track started off with John having the idea, the sort of riff on the guitar mm-hmm. which he played to me, and the basic song which he sang to me. And what we did then, we created a backing with him still playing the guitar, that riff, and I duplicated exactly every note that he played on the guitar on an electric yeah. harpsichord. Yes. And Paul played bass. Uh, yeah. There was nothing for Ringo to do, uh, so... What did he say? He went to rehearse Octopus's <laughs> He went on holiday. They, they had him, uh, he kept time on the hi-hat, in, just in the headphones. Right. So they had a regular beat when they were doing their... Uh, oh, I listened to the instrumental track of that, and that's actually what I can hear. Is there, oh, yeah, is the like, tick, you can tick, hear tick. the tick. And because there's a pause, uh, he had to, because there's a break in it, and he plays the breaks so that the timing nice. stayed in. Wow. Yeah, and George played the, uh, the harpsichord, a Baldwin... Um, electric harpsichord, yeah. which you know, I'm fascinated. I've never seen one. Right. Love to see one. Wow. Yeah. You will. Yeah. So then we move on to, I guess the the sort of the the start of the medley, uh, which is kind of divided up into three parts. It's cut three, uh, and I don't know if there's a 
a true Beatles lover in the world who uh, who doesn't have a little lump in their throat when they hear the start of this song with that sad A minor chord. You never give me your money You only give me your funny paper And in the middle of negotiations you break What about this song? Does it make you sad when you hear it? Oh, especially when it's uh, when it's uh, reprised in in the uh, the way. Oh my yeah, God! With the orchestration. Um, see, it, to me, this is this is McCartney's greatest strength. Is that his greatest strength is that he can sing like a beating heart, and he can he can evoke that amount. Like I can even feel it in myself now, just thinking about it. Uh, just he can evoke that much emotion by singing. The the lyrics are they they follow that slightly abstract um, template that they'd all learned, and and yet he just keeps hitting home. He just keeps hitting home about this exchange between two people and how it it kind of misses the mark and then it hits the mark and misses the mark. And uh, and his voice, just the sweetness of his voice, uh, it's a uh, it was beautiful melody, beautiful. Yeah, everything about it's beautiful. Calm. Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah, I, I don't really have much more to, to add to it. Um, yeah, it's it's perfect, Paul. You know, I can tell you that in his uh, his book just out called The Lyrics, uh, which is. Fantastic. Is it? Fantastic read, yeah. Uh, he says, The problem was that by this stage, everything was up for negotiation and miscommunication was the order of the day. We weren't really writing together anymore. Each person was bringing in little bits of this and little bits of that. And we all knew that phase of our lives, of being the Beatles, was coming to an end. Oh. And wow. you just, to me, that, I, I think it's an A minor. Uh, yeah, that on the piano and it starts and then just him coming in with that, you know, you never give me, it, it just, it's so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, and yet beautiful. I mean, it's yeah. also, I mean, you have to, you have to think that these guys, I think one of the things that I'd always thought is that um, they, you know, and one of the things that's in capitals in this song and more towards the end, more in the repeats, how much the Beatles gave, how much it cost them, obviously, cost two of them their lives, um, but how much they gave and, you know, I mean, they got back adoration and adulation and money and all this kind of stuff. But it's not the same as the gift they gave. The gift they gave was immeasurable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's like a lot of McCartney songs, uh, especially getting into the 70s, uh, made up of a number of sort of uh, disparate parts. Uh, you, have the, you never give me your money. Uh, then the out of college section, and then the one sweet dream section. And <laughs> yeah. you just kind of you know, know. stitch that together. I know, together. and all of those things could be can be could be considered self referential. You know, the one sweet dream, I suppose, was the Beatles, and of course, the yeah. out of college. And then it segues into Sun King. Um, allegedly came to Lennon in a dream. Opens up with the sound of bells and bubbles and chimes and then the sort of crossfade and then the guitar passage begins. What about this one?
no question in my mind that it, it's a hugely influenced uh, musical uh, influence by the song Albatross from Fleetwood Mac, Peter Green. If you listen to Albatross, it's remarkably similar. Oh, yeah. Which is the first time I could ever say that the influence of, on a Beatles construction was so apparent. Because in other, so many other songs, you'll hear the influence, and it's just, but it's so beautifully integrated in this way, like you know the, the Beach Boys style harmonies they would do in mm -hmm. previous recordings and things like that. You obviously could tell that they were influenced by their surroundings and they would do things, but they would, but it was never at the level of like, oh, that's just that's a re, that's Albatross done, and that's what I hear it for sure. Even the way they made it sound with the with the guitars and the reverb. When, when it, what years Albatross have? Albatross came out the year before. Sixty-eight. Yeah, sixty-eight. <laughs> so, so that's an that was a re, that was a revelation for me to just listening to it again and and then realizing you know oh my god that's that's Albatross and that and then but obviously meant something to John and the in certain vibe that it created and then and then and obviously the narrative evolves um, it, because then there's you know like. The, the suggestion was that, you know, it's um, here comes the sun king. Well, we already had mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. comes the, the sun. sun. But now so John's going to have his own, he's going to have his own, yeah, he's going to have his own. Um, but again, it kind of supports, it. It, it supports the, the theory that, that John yeah. came ill prepared, which yeah. is not, it's not so incredible because if they were, if they were wrapping up something in February, that's crazy. Something like let it be, and yeah. then they're back at it in April. Yeah, that's no time. Yeah, there's no. What it, I mean, yeah. that's why they're coming in with fragments, and it's also, again, it's it's a it's more support to the the brilliance of the Beatles that they could come in with that fragment. So you know, yeah. John probably didn't even know he was influenced by that. Song. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but. You're, you're absolutely right looking. I'm just looking through my notes. George Harrison. Uh, at the time, Albatross was out with all the reverb on guitar. And we Ooh. said, let's be Fleetwood Mac doing Albatross just to get going. Oh, it wow. never really sounded like Fleetwood Mac, but that was the point of origin. Right. George wow, Harrison right. said that in the Beatles anthology. Thank wow. you, George. Yeah, Good yeah, for I, you. You nailed it. I knew I had wow. something. Forensic musician. Yeah. Ever, did, now, I just want to jump back for yeah. one second. That that sort of wistful, longing feeling that 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 the the start of you never giving your your money evokes. Uh, Jim, I read a quote from you. Uh, I love quoting my guests here. Uh, <laughs> from your own website, you said success seemed really real when we were entertaining people at the Horseshoe. That was the top of the heap for us. So you get you know that sort of wistfulness starting off. Off with you never give me your money that opening piano chord evoking kind of a longing for the good old days no no both of you and jim first as a veteran musician can you identify with that feeling be it for yourself or a blue rodeo like yeah those were the days well i i for sure i mean you certainly gloss over all the the struggle and and you know i was working full time then so there was there was no sleep but i think that 
when you first experience something, something where there was nothing before, is a lot different than building on something that you have. And building on something has been obviously great. I mean, we, we, we have, we've had wonderful, amazing experiences. But when we started as a band at the Horseshoe, we'd never known what it was like to have an audience. We'd never known um, this encouragement to keep going. To, to, we'd only known failure, and we were, out, we were fine with that. <laughs> we were going to keep going anyway, but, we had, but to all of a sudden have an audience and have things happening to you that have never happened to you before, playing songs people are hearing for the first time and asking you to play them again, that, that is, uh, well, you never get over the flush you know the memory of the flush of that. Colin, are you? Are you? Do you reminisce like that? Do you, ah, you know, crash Vegas and I was younger. Those were the days. Do you do that kind of thing too? Go daddies. Go devils. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, to wax nostalgic on your past, I guess, and some sometimes you you listen to things you've done. And, you know, it is that sort of out of body with some things for me. I just like, well, who is that guy? You know, that was, a, <laughs> that was at a time where you're, you're just germinating and you're, and you're eager to create, but you don't have a sense of your voice. You don't really have any, which can be really a good thing because, you know, you're just a, sort of drawing from all these different uh, influences or ideas that, that might formulate into something uh, as Jim suggests, it, where you can actually perform it and be asked to do it again, you know, because there's been no, there was nothing before that. Um, so I think about those times as being like really um, that for me, that I didn't, I, I, I really was going on blind ambition, you know, blind faith to a certain degree. There was a lot of blindness in the way that, you would try to imagine how you could write a song with someone or that you could be part of a group and what were you going to do and how did it come out? And, and then once you actually decided that that was the thing, how was, how was it going to be received, right? And, uh, but, I, but I also think that at some point, as again, Jim suggests, you, you build on something you already have, you're knowing. So then that becomes a different perspective and where it's like, I'm less inclined to wax nostalgia. I, I, I'm more inclined to want to try and push myself mm -hmm. as I did when I was that young. Mm -hmm. Just keep pushing that engine in me that b brought me to that place to begin with. You know, I just, I've never lost that sense of discovery and wanting to create another possibility out of all of that history that we've had together and and that's what it is for me when I think back it's more I still want to be that guy I don't necessarily want to think about all the stuff that I did then you're I saying just, success hasn't spoiled you that's what you're saying no not really you know I, uh, you no. just still yeah. I still yeah. walk to the like you know I walked here delivering the mail know, and well, playing drums at night. Pretty, pretty much it you know <laughs> I was going to open my own uh, hair salon at hair school. salon <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and listener don't believe it we're sitting here in at the yeah. global headquarters of Blue Rodeo they yeah. just cleared away the fine white linen after the, the lunch that was served between yeah. sides one and two yeah. uh, and uh, the drive what time's the driver coming to oh, pick me up to go he's home just, he's waiting for yeah, us oh, perfect <laughs> the job 
choppers on the roof. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the other Sun King thing, uh, they had some fun, uh, as uh, John Lennon said in an interview. We came to sing it uh, to make them different. We started joking, saying, uh, Cuando pera mucho. We just made mm-hmm. it all up. Paul knew a few Spanish words from school, and we just strung any Spanish words that sounded vaguely like something. And of course, we got Chica Ferdi, which is a Liverpool expression, slang for uh, F off. So, they, <laughs> so they, they put that in there just for a joke. I actually, uh, I printed out the, uh, the lyrics that they actually, that it translates to. Does it actually translate? Well, they, somebody, did, uh, it says loosely translated from Spanish, Portuguese, Polish, and Italian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is what it translates as. When as much as my love is of a happy heart, my love silences the world's annoying buzz like a green parasol that will cover me as I want for your sunlit face. I'm not using the literal translation of paparazzi here, but instead I am taking paparazzi from the Fellini character, paparazzo, in the film La Dolce Vita. Oh so it's like, That's you know, there's no way it's that, there's no way it's no, that no, coherent. No way. No, but, uh, but apparently there <laughs> that, is... That is somebody's an, poetic it, yeah. interpretation. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's been scholarly study on that, that one section. Okay, and then with a few beats of the drum... So this, uh, so if we start this um this particular uh, piece with with the sweetness of of a uh, uh, McCartney's voice, and that's what he does most naturally. Then we go to Mean Mr. Mustard, which is a nonsense song, and yet somehow has a little bit of snarl to it that you can feel, mm-hmm. that you can feel. I mean, when he says, such a dirty old man, no, that's in Polythene Pam, isn't it? Um, yes. Mr. Yeah, so that's so. But anyway, what he, what he, the lyrics he says in it, even though they are a bit of nonsense rhyme, they still have a little... No, no, dirty old man's mean. Oh, dirty man. Man. Dirty yeah, old man. Yeah. So dirty yeah. old man's in this, yeah. 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 Which to me always harkens back to Hard Day's Night. You know, he's a clean old man. Right. Very clean. Um, Very clean, uh, isn't he? It just there's something uh, believable in the, the little snarl of of um, of, uh, of Lennon. And if McCartney had sat sung those lines, they would have seemed silly, vaudevillian almost. Vaudevillian. Right? Yeah. 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 I agree. Mean Mister Mustard. An actual, he got this out of, he got a lot of stuff out of newspapers. Yeah. You know, Day in the Life, uh, famous Good Morning uh, out of newspapers. Yeah. Um, this was from a Daily Mirror article on June 7th, 1967. Mr. Mustard, a civil servant, was also so mean with lighting and heating that he went far beyond what any wife could be expected to bear, said Mr. Justice Rees. To save electricity, he would turn off the light while they were listening to the radio because it was not necessary to see in order to listen. (laughs) And he would also shave and go to bed in the dark. Uh, the guy's name was John Alexander Mustard, uh, and Lennon had read that in the Daily Mirror. A 65-year-old Scotsman uh, had taken uh, been taken to divorce court 
by his wife as a result of his meanness. That's excellent. Wow. So, That's excellent. Did not know that. So, well, he did a good job depicting yeah. it. Oh, man. Uh, so then from Mean Mr. Mustard right into, which he refers to in Me, in me Mr. Mustard, you know, his sister Pam, right? His sister yeah. Pam worked in a shop. It is Polythene Pam. I love the, I just love the start of the song with those great, yeah. grab a guitar and play that. That yeah, yeah. sounds so good. It's just probably like D, A to E. Yeah. Damn. So I just, also, I'd want to say that, that this is the first song on the record where John sings in any semblance of an English accent. She's a girl, and uh, and you should see her when she's dressed to the ilt. Yeah, she's yeah. Eddie Jackson yeah. when she's dressed. So, it, first of all, it's remarkable that they sing with North American accents, 100% clearly North American accents, which is a strange... Uh, false thing that's just been accepted by the world that Brit British people will sing without their accents and then I remember when I was a kid first hearing them speak and thinking what is going on yeah what I, mean, I thought the accents were fantastic mm -hmm. but there's a complete uh, uh, dichotomy between the way the, the accent they use singing and the accent they use speaking and on this record they go all the way through even mean Mr. Mustard and then Polythene Pam he sings with a little bit of an English lilt. There must be a reason. You know, I think that he's, 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 he's talking about English life, so there must yeah, be a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it's a real scouse. Yeah, and he's using... Hard scouse accent, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 12-string guitar on yeah. this one. Um, and it was, what does he say about it? John Lennon said, that was me remembering a little event with a woman in Jersey and a man who was England's answer to Allen Ginsberg, the English uh, beat poet mm. Royston Ellis was the guy's name. I met him when we were on tour, and he took me back to his apartment, and I had a girl, and he had one, and he wanted me to meet her. He said she dressed up in polythene, which she did. She didn't wear jackboots and kilts. I just sort of elaborated. Perverted sex in a polythene bag, just looking for something to write about. Yeah. John Lennon said. But again, the, the brilliance of John that can write just a little... A little uh, Piece yeah. of a song, and yeah. have it be have it be that and the urgency with he sing, which with these with which he sings, and and we'll come back to this later. But uh, when they were developing the sort of Abbey Road medley, Her Majesty was originally included between mm -hmm. Mean Mister Mustard yeah. and Polythene Pam. McCartney didn't like it, so they took it out, 
Uh, but that's that final crashing chord of yeah. me, Mr. Mustard, that we hear at the right. start of it. Yeah, it's so. the it's the right. tail. That tail goes into the. Um, so then, from that, so Polythene Pam and she came in through the bathroom window were recorded as one, um, and so we go right into she came in through the bathroom window. Uh, classic McCartney. Amazing the way it starts too, because yeah. that one you can't help but you can't help put your hand up. And go, she came in through the bathroom, and, and again, I think that this one where he says the line, uh, "So I quit the police department and got myself a steady job." Funny, right? Just seems funny. If Lennon had sung that, it would have sounded somehow like a slag on the police. That 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 wasn't a steady job. Yeah. That that's so somehow a, a less respectable job, and uh, you know I think this record in general just shows how differently how different how much different the interpretations of lyrics are because of the sound of their voices and what we know about their character yes absolutely and and uh and what uh, they'd already done you know yeah. and like and you what know, they'd they were, already done they their sensibilities had been you know had been um shown in other songs you know so that that by that point you do have a certain perceptions and acceptances of their personalities Completely. right i mean as much as mccartney wanted to to make himself and probably rightly so to be the guy that explored uh, modern art and, and yeah. modern music he that just was not his oeuvre that was not the way he was going to be received because of the way he looked the way his personality was and the songs he sang and this was a perfect example because it's a fantastic song yeah. And, and and McCartney loves uh, when he talks about the song, uh, the images, then the dancer who worked at fifteen clubs a day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the guy who quits the police department, as you yeah, said, yeah. Jim, and the woman who could steal but she could not rob. Yeah. rob. Yeah. yeah, I love that like, line. Yeah, just uh, great stuff. Uh, and uh, recalling it, he says that of course goes back to the fact that a woman actually did sneak into my mm -hmm. house through a bathroom window that was a bit ajar. A fan, apparently, one of a group. Called called the Apple Scruffs. She found a ladder lying outside my house in London. As far as I recall, she stole a picture of my cotton salesman dad or robbed me of it, but I got the song in return. So fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Man. So that for me sort of concludes the first part of the side two long one as the Beatles referred to it while they were recording Abbey Road. And before we pick it up again with the second section, Golden Slumbers Carry That Way, and the end. I do just want to take a quick moment here to ask that if you enjoy these podcasts, would you please make a donation to support the production of the podcast? It could be easier, and it will help nudge me closer to my goal of purchasing the official The Walrus Was Paul Yacht. So there you go. Just head to the website, romycast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. Click on the Support the Walrus button. Any donation is much appreciated, and I'll be sure to acknowledge your gift in the next episode of the Walrus Was Paul podcast and also in the uh, semi-regular email 
newsletter that goes out to subscribers. If you'd like to get in on that email newsletter blast that goes out, usually goes out a few days before a new episode drops, completely free, and you can sign up for it at the website. While you're at the website, you can also navigate to the page Hire Paul. I have extensive experience as a voiceover artist, a broadcaster, a writer, a producer, and I'm always on the lookout for projects to work on that interest me. Uh, I will endeavor to make your project or event or podcast better. Uh, You can get in touch with me if you're interested through the website, and we will take it from there. Uh, Also at the website, you can find every episode of the Walrus Was Paul series, and the best way to not miss an episode is to hit the subscribe button wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you'll be notified whenever a new episode drops. All right, so guys, before we get back into the record for the stretch run here, uh, on a few occasions, you'll notice I've been quoting from that new Paul McCartney book called The Lyrics. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be under a lot of Beatles fans' Christmas trees. Uh, It's a great read. I highly recommend it. Uh, He shares some of the stories or ideas or circumstances surrounding all of his greatest songs. Some of the stories you know if you're a big Beatles geek like I am, uh, but some of them you don't. It, It really is. It's a terrific read. But to sort of adapt that to what we're doing here, I wonder if I could get each of you guys to relate a story behind one of your songs. Just something to do with the song. Colin? Well, I have a song that's a co-write, but it's a, but I would say that I, I can commonly say that I contributed probably 80% of the song. And the reason that the song came about was um, this is before, uh, it's actually just when Jim and I first started working together on the solo work, but I was also working with this band called Junk House. And the the main singer in that band and I spent a lot of time writing a lot of songs together, co-writing these songs. And one of the songs that ended up uh, being written was, and I at the time was listening to a lot of Beck, especially this record called Odelay. And... I just, I love that he could almost like had, you know, he just had this very sort of, um, his rhythmic narrative in the way that he would write a song um, um, really appealed to me. And so we wrote a bunch of songs for this record. And one of the songs I brought was basically my <laughs> rip of a song that I, you know, I've been listening to back and I was trying to write a Beck style song. And, and, what had happened was that in the band, there was a lot of complaints. There'd been a big complaint about the fact that Tom, Tom Wilson and I had written all the songs and the other guys had no part of those songs. So now they were like, well, what about us? We're not going to get a piece where, you know. So I went home and I wrote, I basically wrote a skeleton for a song and I had the verses, uh, I had all the music and I'd written the choruses. And then I, so I brought it in and I said, okay, this will satisfy this problem where you guys don't feel like you're getting any contri- contribution. So I said, write one verse. Each each guy writes one verse and the song is about Hamilton because we all grew up in Hamilton. I thought, I said, just write a verse about anything to do with being in Hamilton. And and so, and, and I said, it's basically all there. You just got to write literally like, you know, five lines and we'll share it all together. And it'll be kind of like our thing where we're all from Hamilton, we're sharing this song. And so everybody high fives, you know, all right, it's gonna be great, it's great. And then, you know, a couple of weeks went by and 
nobody had done anything. And then one day Tom came in and he says, he says, I wrote all the verses for the song. And I was like, great, played the song. We, I thought, okay, the song's done. So then we went to demo it for that record and it was rejected by the record company. This is, you know, he's the guy, we don't get the song. Okay, so then it sat there for about a year. And at the same time, Tom was in this band uh, called Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. Well, he brings the song into them one day and says, hey, we got this leftover song from when Colin and I were, wrote a year ago. And so they do that song, totally make it their own, and then record it, and it becomes their first single off their second record. And, and um, it's called Lean On Your Peers. Very simple song, but the idea of it, the story was that I was trying to think about how the Beatles or any band is influenced by somebody else, and then how does that influence reimagine itself in the way that they would write a song? And for me, it was like, well, I have that one song where it was like, I was trying to sound like Beck, because I loved that period of his work. But you listen to this, what that song ended up becoming. It doesn't sound anything like Beck. But that's where truly where it came from. And that's my story about it. Cool. Yeah. Cool. What about you, Jim? Do you have 80% of the publishing? No, because I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I, split, I split the pie. <laughs> we'll, do, yeah. we'll cover that in more, uh, more in depth on the legal music we'll podcast. Do, yeah, we'll do a public, I'm, I'm working one. on that one. I'm yeah. working on that one. I mean... How many songs have you written? It's you've got. There's got to be some that are. Oh yeah, there's lots. There's lots, and I think that you know, long ago, realized that if you didn't write some, if you didn't write songs that were about something specific, if they were just generalized, it was going to be very hard to sing them over and over and over again. So years ago, we started to do that. Well, I mean, maybe Greg always did it, but so I have a song called "Till I Am Myself" and uh, "Till I Am Myself Again." And it, recently, we just did. Uh, Thing that so Basil admitted he's this, this he's the model for the song, and so now I can say okay so, battle Basil had a, a pretty bad battle with the bottle for a number of years, and uh, much to his credit, he he uh, won that battle, and all, just on the strength of will, he says one of the strongest people I've ever met, but when he was telling me about it later, he was talking about how people that are people that suffer from that. It's, they don't have the confidence to face the day without um, alcohol, without that thing that changes their brain. Like the idea of getting up and just facing the world sober is, is too frightening. So that's where the first line, I want, I want to know where my confidence went. That's where the first line came from. Oh, 
the whole song was imagining this because we were touring all the time. And I had never... Basil was very clever about hiding how he was coping. And then when I understood, when I talked to him, I realized in retrospect and then watching it, watching him recover too, how difficult it was for him, how difficult it was for him to, to feel like himself when he was with people. And uh, that's where I got the idea of Till I Am Myself Again because there is always, in, in any abused uh, substance or a behavior, there's this notion that as soon as I get through this period, I'll stop doing this. I'll, I'll, as soon as I, I get over the sadness of my breakup or my losing my mother, I will, I will, then I'll confront this. But that's, that's making sure that it never happens. And so that's, that's what Till I Am Myself was all about. Basil, we, we did a, a thing last week and uh, we had to talk about song, Blue Rodeo songs and the stories. And Basil said, well, this song was written about me. I'm like, yeah. okay, here we go. <laughs> the door is open. Yeah, yeah. Great story and an amazing song. Thank you. Love yeah. that song. Pleasure. Okay, so last section in the stretch run of uh, Side 2, amazing side of an album, uh, one of the greatest ever Side 2s for my money. Uh, and the start of it is Golden Slumbers, which was recorded together with, with Carrie That Weight, similar to Polythene Pam, and she came in through the bathroom window and, and Sun King and Mean Mr. Mustard. Um, song's lyrics taken from a, a ballad by an Elizabethan poet named Thomas Decker. McCartney saw the sheet music on the piano at his father's home and uh, just sort of went from there. One stores away To get back homeward One stores away To get back home. Sleep, pretty darling, do not cry And I will sing a lullaby That, as almost an exclamation of the final act together, that's one of the things I find endlessly moving. Yeah. So as it starts off with Golden Slumbers, which was a song I never totally understood why it was there, because we'd gone through this all this amazing, uh, um, energetic, crazy little poems and and crazy little music, and then Golden Slumbers. I didn't I didn't really understand. I liked the sound of it as a kid, but I didn't really understand why we were talking about sleeping. Yeah. Uh, but just as a as an exercise of them all playing together, it still ranks up there. It's, Something Do you think it might have been because, well, it's also like really being the the springboard to, boy, you're going to carry that weight. You know, it just, there's something about the way it starts. And then it, it seems it's such a perfect springboard to that energy again, which never lets up it from is, then on. It is musically, but, but, but thematically right? it's odd. But to, to write that so that it gets to that, it seems to me like, you know, he, how did he, I mean, it may have just have been a, a brilliant um, uh, stroke of luck that well, he got that, the intimacy of the beginning of Golden Slumbers to, you know, 
Well, he, he wrote the music. The lyrics, as I said, were taken from a poem, and <clears throat> you'll see why, uh, how much that was influenced uh, when I read you the, the, the poem. Right. Golden slumbers kiss your eyes, smiles awake you when you rise. Sleep pretty wantons, do not cry, and I will sing a lullaby. Rock them, rock them, lullaby. I get it. I mean, if you yeah. think of the if you think of the second side as a conversation among all the band members of of of, uh, of the Beatles, which is possible because they are they are filling in these really colorful little bits with each other and singing together gloriously, and then Golden Slumbers as a lyrical theme just comes out of nowhere. Comes out of nowhere. Kind of, it's like okay, mm-hmm. well, you know, where, where, whereas when when uh, Good Night happens on. On that white album, mm-hmm. you realize he really is saying goodnight to us. Right. We've just right. listened to right. yeah. an hour plus of of these wonderful, incredible songs. But this conversation that's happening—it's almost as if somebody—it's almost as if it's been inserted. And I get it. I understand why musically it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's another example of great uh, Paul McCartney uh, uh, vocal, but. Well, McCartney says, it's very possible that I've been feeling down in London. I was back in the solace of family in Liverpool, and what with the Beatles' troubles down south, I was likely thinking, wouldn't it be nice to get home and have that comfortable feeling again? So there may have been some of that in the background. I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, And then segues into carry that weight. And again, McCartney speaking again. uh, He says... uh, Once it got into the more serious stuff, he says it refers to the troubles the Beatles were having both within the group and in their business dealings, but also the feeling you could have after a bad LSD trip. Uh, according to him. Once you got into the more serious stuff, then you were just sort of uh, doing it and there wasn't this light relief. It could be oppressive. And that was coupled with the business problems at Apple Records, which were really horrible. The business meetings that were just soul-destroying. We'd sit around an office and it was a place you just didn't want to be with people you just didn't want to be with. And he says that in his book, The Lyrics. Uh, And they they segue into carry that weight. So is he maybe, t- is he, do you think he might be talking to himself saying that he's going to have to carry that Oh, I'm sure he is. And yet and I think that the, the, the problem with being an artist and, is what people um, impose on you. Right. So I, I still feel in, in my interpretation, oh, I'm happy what Paul feels about it. But <laughs> I still think that those are messages to us. You know, right. that they're saying, they're talking about life. They're talking about, boy, you're going to carry that weight a long time. And obviously, they were they were giving an example. This is, I know this is getting too far. I recognize this is too far. But still, <laughs> this is this is what occurs to you when you're when you're listening to it. I mean, is, is that is that somehow these four people were able? They were they were already exploded. They were already done with each other, and yet they were able to do something so harmonious, like playing these things. And the message, I'm sure they were all thinking for themselves at that point, but still there's a resonance to all four of them and to all of the rest of us, is that we believed in this institution and it brought us so much joy and it and it elevated us so much and we've been still talking about it 50 years later. Mm-hmm. And, and we're being told that it's an incredible weight, which we have to accept. And 
It's a beautiful thing to do, but it has exacted an enormous toll on these young men. Right. And then I just love the way that the guitar motif from the end of You Never Give Me Your Money comes back in near the end of Carry That Weight and it bridges you right into the next song we're going to talk about, The End. A remarkable song on so many levels. It's the, it's the final emotional message, right? I just love that each of them, it's, it, you know, if we're talking about that culmination of, of, of each of them participating individually and collectively, that, that, there's that section where they go into the, from the drum solo into, the, into that next section where they share the, the solos, right? And it's, um, I love that they shared them all. That's, I don't know that that had ever happened before. Like where they said, okay, each take a you know each take a two bar or whatever, and um, can you tell who's who in the in the without yeah you know, without without Mark Lewis and telling you can you no I could tell can it, you yeah. tell who's who yeah they, it, yeah it, um, Paul's first George and then John. Yeah, I think you can tell and, John, but I have trouble telling between who's the most accomplished. Uh, well, there's it's one, interesting. There's one guitar that's clearly the most accomplished. It's the clearest sound. It does the most. Paul's actually in that in that sequence. I'd say Paul's the most the most um, distinctive. I would say that too. Yeah, I think that's he's right. got. You know, Paul has this. Uh, you know, hear it on a lot of other songs, but Paul has this. Incredible vibrato on his yeah. on when he plays. He would play certain things uh, just a certain way, yeah. and that became part of his his when he bent you know notes and that he had a certain vibrato in it, and uh, that became a signature over over the years. And uh, yeah. so you can hear it in that. I think so. Yeah. And um, so. and uh, and John's is the most. Uh, you know, these guys even study that. You know, and it's very guitar nerdy thing, but it it does make a difference in the sonics because you know. Um, because uh, both Paul and jo- uh, Paul Paul and John are both playing their casinos, oh, which Paul's have a sound. A casino too, man. Yeah, which have a sound. Different. Paul's playing in the bridge pickup, though, in the back pickup. Oh, okay. John's playing in the front pickup, oh, yeah, which yeah. is more woofy and yeah, yeah. bassy. Yeah. And George is playing the Les Paul that he had acquired the year before from Eric Clapton, which was part of the exchange Lucy. for Patty Boyd. Yeah, yeah, probably came in, <laughs> came in the exchange. So those three guitar tones, if you're, you know, if you're a guitar nerd like me, you can you can figure those out. I thought he was pl- playing a Fender Stratocaster, George. Uh, no, George is playing. I, uh, he's playing the Les Paul. Okay, he's playing Lucy, the Les Paul, because it just has a little more thickness and and, and horsepower. You can hear the, and that's uh, yeah. Anyways, that's uh, I love that moment because. Um, it's you know the drummer gets a solo, the guitars get us get their solos. Yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. No, it's total myth myth making. You know, it's at the end of the last, essentially the last record they made in it, the most yeah. uh, the most culture shattering uh, career ever, 
and they they do something individually and then collectively and then they end end up with this and in the end the love you yeah take is equal to the love you make you think oh my god I, I, I'm, I'm, this, I'm still geeking out over yeah. <clears throat> you know talking to, to real musicians and how you you immediately went to when you listen to those those three guitar solos so they're 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 going in in the order you and right off the bat you can go that guy's a better guitar player than that guy that's maybe that's, that's the wrong the, maybe that's the yeah. wrong word but there's a greater articulation in in there's there's one guitar which you're saying is Paul that is much more clearly articulated at the end of the notes you can yeah. tell John because John John fuzzes out I mean we, there's lots of examples of John playing the guitar and you know how he how he likes the guitar to sound and it's the same thing that that uh, Paul parodied when he finally you know sent a salvo back to John about after the how do you say yeah, yeah, he parodied yeah. that 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 way of playing guitar that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so there is is that but the other two are, are difficult for me because because uh, uh, it's hard George's style in that one is not it's, it's not, not as his, distinctively not yeah yeah it, I agree it's uh, but yeah because yeah Paul's is unmistakable if you listen to Paul's guitar playing over enough of the records you go oh that's Paul yeah. oh that's Paul wait a second is that Paul or George and then you mm -hmm. know and yeah. then I mean I just love the uh, the fact that you know that they they just rotate through it I love uh, that like it's yeah. and it was done live in the studio live on the floor yep. yeah oh, yeah and they did it and they yeah. all do a great job there's no there's yeah. no there's no part of that that you don't think is distinctive and, and doesn't belong there yeah I do they yeah. do a great job <laughs> Uh, McCartney says the final couplet was inspired by his love of Shakespeare couplets from his school days. Uh, so he quotes, uh, you know, he goes, there's a great line in Macbeth. Uh, I go and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. And then McCartney says, uh, that's Shakespeare's way of saying, that's it, folks. <clears throat> the end was our way of saying the same. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Uh, and then it touches back on that beautiful, I think it's an A minor from You Never Give Me Your Money mm -hmm. and concludes on a, a sad C major chord, I think it is. So, uh, you know, there's, I, I've only, uh, I guess I read the, maybe this is from the lyrics book, but in the New Yorker, they had him describing Eleanor Rigby. And, and they, you know, he said, he starts talking about all the cold cream, you know, everybody used cold cream. And she, that's what I meant by the, 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 the face she keeps in the jar by the door. And, uh, and it's at the, those kind of moments where you realize that the artist doesn't have full control over uh, what will resonate from their poetry. I mean, those last two lines, uh, the love you take is equal to the love you make, is not resonating with people because it's the ending. It's resonating with people because it's the ultimate gift. It's, it's, it's this little beautiful message that... All of this, all of this scrapping and all of the things we've done and how we're going to break up, it's going to be fucking horrible for years. It's all to understand that one thing, that love is the only thing that matters in life. 
So it's just almost as if McCartney doesn't get it. His own freaking <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, I'm interested in reading the book, but he's, he's in my opinion, he's always been a, a poor interpreter of, of his own lyrics. Because certainly the, the face she keeps in the jar by the door has yeah. much greater import than, oh, than yeah. using cold yeah. cream. Yeah. It, it all, even when I was young, it seemed to me, oh, it's something false. It's putting on a false face. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's about a personality yeah. uh, overlay. It's just all these things. It's not about cold cream. Yeah, yeah. I've never yeah. heard him say. Yeah, don't reduce it. To yeah, that, that, you know, that's that's. I've I've never heard him because that's. I mean, my interpretation, like most, uh, like it, it. It's it's that's the English personality. You know, stiff upper lip. Yes. You don't show any pain. You right. don't show you. Right. You put on the face before yes. you go out that you exactly. keep in the jar by the exactly. door. That was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he talks about how cold cream was so important then, and he always remembers that. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, I mean, a funny mistake, um, but uh, that crashing guitar that we hear 20-something mm -hmm. seconds later and, and we get Her Majesty to, uh, to finish it off. I um, didn't, obviously, for years know that that existed, obviously, on a record. You because, didn't? Well, because I, when I obviously listened to the record, you know, um, uh, Whoever thought that there'd you be something there. twenty seconds later? You just never. I never got there. We did. Yeah, so you I just never well, got I there. Guess, well, know, I mean, all I those people, all those people that let the record run. Yeah, I just never. Oh yeah, got no, there. we we knew. Right so. but it, it 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 is a you know uh, it's cheeky. Even at the time, it was cheeky. Oh, yeah. You know, talking about the queen, she doesn't yeah. have a lot to say. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's 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 good. I think that's that's good, McCartney. That's that's one where he's. He's being a little silly, but he's actually taking a little poke at the royalty, and that's... John Kurlander, the engineer uh, on the session, said, We did all the remixes and crossfades to overlap the songs. Paul was there, and he heard it together for the first time and said, I don't like Her Majesty. Throw it away. So I cut it out. I accidentally left it... Uh, in the last note, which is the crap. He said, it's only a rough mix, doesn't matter. Uh, so I said to Paul, what should I do with it? Throw it away, he said. I've been told never to throw anything away. So after he <laughs> left, yeah. I yeah. picked it up off the floor, put about 20 seconds of red leader tape before, <clears throat> and stuck it onto the end of the edit tape. And then, of course, and it, then it, it went to mastering. But it was approved? You mean it was never approved? Not till after mastering. Oh my God, that's even better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's an amazing to think that we can, you know, we can, we could go through all again and reanalyze. But they had to make all those decisions. They had to listen to that and say, yes, yeah. that's right. Yes, put that there. Yes, this oh, is right. Yeah, move that around. Yeah, put the moog in in the third verse. You oh, know, it, it is all those it's brilliant, beautiful, almost God. Yeah, it's divine. God guiding decisions. Something about it that just... because they they made the ultimate breakup record. Yeah. It breaks up. Breaks your heart, but it doesn't shatter you. Mm. Uh, the cover, uh, unique amongst Beatles albums to feature neither the group's name nor the title on the cover. Four yeah. members just pictured walking. If you've not been there, by the way, <clears throat> dear listener, when you're looking at it, the entrance to the studio is on the left side of the picture. It's the, it's the white sort of stuccoed wall building set back from the wall uh, by about 20, 30 meters. Uh, and you walk into the famous doors. Photograph was taken by the late Ian McMillan on August the 8th, 1969. They started at 11.35 in the morning. Cops came and stopped traffic. McMillan put up a stepladder in the middle of Abbey Road, took six photographs using his Hasselblad camera uh, and a 50-millimeter wide-angle lens. 
If you're a real nerd, aperture was f22 at one five hundredth of a second. Uh, the picture on the cover was the sixth exposure, or pardon me, the fifth of the six exposures. So the fifth one, McCartney chose that one to go on the cover, and then the back cover, he was taken at the corner. Uh, that sign's not there anymore, the one on the wall. And while he was doing it, a girl in a blue dress walked by. He was pissed off at her, apparently. and But he ended up using it for the back cover. Uh, so there you go. Uh, and wait, when you do go there and want to take that picture, you'll have to wait in line. Because everybody's yeah. on the corner waiting to have their picture taken. Well, the I, I know you guys have both been there. Uh, Jim, you talked before about being there, I think with Colin, uh, yeah. when they were recording a live from Abbey Road session with Blondie. Yeah. Uh, yes. What was it like being in Studio 2? I mean, that's the place. That's where the magic all happened. Well, I think I was, I was talking to you earlier about how, you know, in our studio here, we, we eliminated the control room because we, we hated the lack of communication when you were doing a take um, between yourself on the floor and whoever's in the control room. And Abbey Road, it's way up. It's a, it's a loft. It's way up there, which is which is drag. It must have been crazy for them. But they were so they were so obedient in those days, right? Checking in and checking out. But um, it was amazing to be there. It was we had a very full tour. Um, so many people were there that knew so much more about the gear than I did. But then we were sitting in in listening, and I, I felt weird because it was, you know, we were clearly anyway. Ultimately, Deborah Harry asked for us to go. And, no. Uh, yeah, but it, it's okay. I mean, we were sta- we were staring right at her. She was staring at us, and she was trying to do a radio broadcast. Right. And. Then, uh, is the drummer's name Clem Burke? Yes. He came out and, and said, uh, I love you guys, and uh, <laughs> I wish you could stay, but, you know, she's getting a little nervous. And uh, But they were good. They, they were really good. They sounded yeah. really good. And she sounded really good. Um, we're almost talked out. Uh, to your final takeaways from what we've been talking about over the course of the last hour and a half or so, Jim? Well, I think that of, of all the Beatle records, the, the two that are most evocative for me, are, or the two phases that are most evocative for me are the beginning, where I, where I first heard the Beatles. And it was the first time I ever experienced that level of excitement, that, that level of what is happening inside my body. Be, this, is, this is for us. And my God, I would have been eight or something like that, nine. And then... And then the emotional response I still have to Abbey Road, where I realize, and probably more in retrospect, because when it in 1970, then I was at that point I was in grade 10, and things are happening, and so maybe I didn't really realize the full import of it then. But the emotional response I still have to this record, even walking up here, just giving myself a refresher course on it, it just I had to stop when when the end comes on and just gather myself a little bit. So I realized that it uh, it's so deeply embedded in my psyche that uh, it's a hugely impactful record and and that I will uh, defend Maxwell Silver Hammer to <laughs> <laughs> with a silver hammer. <laughs> Colin, what about you? What's your takeaway? Well, for me, I guess, you know, from the, from the point of having it be the first, you know, one of the first two records I ever got, albums I ever got, and that I obviously was attracted to it for a very naive perspective at, at eight years old. But all these years later, um, 
it still resonates with me in that I can still see myself holding that record at Christmas time and the wonderment of hearing that music and not understanding what I was listening to, but it having such an impact on me. And I have to believe that it was very much part of my DNA in, in developing my identity in wanting to be a creative person and wanting to be involved in music. And, uh, and, and so when I hear it now with a very different ear and a different, uh, uh, obviously a different perspective in, in many ways, I still think of it as being a seminal record for me because of when I first heard it, not just because I understand what I'm actually listening to now in a different way. Guys, thank you for the generosity of your time. It has been my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for doing it, Paul. Yes, it a pleasure thank you, for us Paul. too. So that is it, and that was fun. Uh, dear listener, always curious to know what you think. What are your thoughts on our thoughts regarding Abbey Road, the Beatles' greatest album? Is it? Was it for you? Certainly their biggest selling original studio album. We know that for a fact. Uh, you can join the conversation in several ways. You can go to the episode page for this podcast on my website, romicast.com, and there's a comment section on each individual episode page. So you can go that route. Uh, we can also interact on Twitter or Instagram. Romanuk Paul is the handle on both. And of course, there is the Facebook route. Do a search on Facebook for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you can leave a comment there. Coming up next, a Christmas bonus episode. I'll be taking a look at Beatles singles that made it to number one on the UK Christmas singles charts. Now, for those of you who are listening in the UK, you know what a big deal that is. It is a very big deal to have a number one Christmas single. Uh, North America, Canada, not so much, but it's a big deal in the UK. So for the purposes of our conversation, we'll be talking about the UK music charts and the Beatles as far as I know, have more Christmas number ones on the UK chart than any other band. They had four of them. Uh, that special episode will drop appropriately on Christmas Eve day. So look for that. Also coming up, songwriter, musician, and producer Mo Berg, one of the founding members of the great Canadian 1990s power pop band, The Pursuit of Happiness, will be joining me to talk about Paul McCartney's first solo record, 1970s McCartney. It's just such a unique record, and it came at such an interesting time in the in you know Paul McCartney and the Beatles um, career, um, it, it, there's just a lot you know. There's it's it's un unlike anything else that anybody did of the four of those. In my opinion, it's just a very unique, interesting kind of record. That is Moberg talking about the McCartney album on the next Walrus Was Paul. Until then, you take care. Oh, oh, and maybe, maybe just maybe, wait for about 14 seconds after the end of the show before you move on. You know, the same as the 14 seconds between the end and the hidden track on Abbey Road. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? I can, uh, uh, when I play 
Okay, so here we are. Just like the Abbey Road album, 14 seconds after the end of the podcast, we have our own hidden track. So here it is. In 2007, to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, the BBC commissioned some prominent musical artists of the day to go into the studio and recreate the album in sort of the same circumstances, the same order, the same process. Brian Adams was one of the artists who was involved in that project. You can hunt around for it, and it's still up on YouTube. It's pretty cool. Uh, In Brian Adams' band, however, playing lead guitar and singing background vocals was one Colin Cripps, our guest for the last couple of podcasts talking about Abbey Road. So, here's Colin Cripps on our Abbey Road hidden track talking about his role in that really cool Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band project. What it was, was it was a uh, BBC-sponsored... 40th anniversary tribute to uh, Sgt. Pepper. And they invited um, a number of artists to redo songs from the record. And the, the, the great part of it was you got to record on the original equipment with Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer, wow. and the tape operator, whose name was Richard Lush. And um, so... Uh, so Brian, I had been working, I was working with Brian a bunch at that point and Brian got invited to be one of the artists. So he called me up and said, do you want to go do this Beatle, uh, thing? And I, I, I was like, yeah, well, I'll be there tomorrow, you know? <laughs> And so we went to London, and a uh, misconception that people may have is that the original equipment that they that they recorded on uh, is no longer at Abbey Road. Uh, it you know they had what they call the sale of the century in the 1980s. That Abbey Road decided they were going to remodel um, all of their control rooms. They weren't going to touch the floors. They were th- those have not been touched since you know probably back since the 50s. And uh, they're kind of sacred ground. So, but they remodeled all of the um, control rooms in one, two, and three. And so Studio Two, um, they they took out all the gear, the remodel, put in new modern equipment for that time, which was the early 80s. And then this stuff was just sitting around. And so they had a sale, which they've now called the sale of the century, where literally they invited anybody you could go in and they had a public auction of all the equipment that they no longer thought was was valuable to the studio. And so a, a bunch of that stuff got sold off, including the original uh, Red 51 console, the Red 37 console, a bunch of outboard equipment, and uh, uh, they kept all the microphones that. But And so um, Mark Knopfler eventually, I guess years later, he tracked down some of this stuff and he just, whatever he could buy, he bought and built his own studio uh, called London Grove Studios in London, which is like phenomenal studio. And then he had 
uh, uh, so at a point, certain point, he had the Red 51 console, which was um, used up until 60, 68. And, um, and he also had the TG series console that, that Abbey Road, the same console that Abbey, Abbey Road was done on, but it was not that exact console, but it was the same console. It was the one that, that Paul did uh, Band on the Run on. Mm-hmm. So he owned both those consoles and he builds his studio in London, no expense spared, incredible place. And that's where we recorded the song that, that we did with Brian. So if you go online, you see it. We're at, it's called British Grove Studios in London. And, um, but it was with Jeff Emmerich, Richard Lush on the original console, original tape machines, original, everything was done as per the way that they recorded it in in 67. Even the sequencing of the tracking. So we did the bed track first, then we did, the, then, then because um, uh, Jeff had notes for all these things. He remembered all this stuff. He had incredible, you know, memory for all these things that he had what done. An he was just a, He was, wow. you know, when he started with him, he was, tw- he, he was 19. He, the first thing he did with was um, Tomorrow Never Knows. He was 19. So by the time he got to Sergeant Pepper, he was only 21. You know, so that's one of the greatest, uh, you know, recording experiences of my career for sure is that spending that that day with him and Richard and and uh, and watching the process of how that, you know, that equipment was was really instrumental in creating the possibility for the sounds that you hear because when we did it you know i'm watching him as what he did you know and then we did the so example we did the bed track and it, and, it, and it went in and listened to it it was like that sounds there, there's the sound like they, he just <laughs> knew he was he was so much more instrumental in that than he was given credit for and i think it's since uh, I mean, he passed away a few years ago now. But since then, you know, I think that's part of the narrative is that people are saying, you know, everything was brilliant. The engineers were brilliant. The, the mixing was brilliant. The studios were brilliant. The band was brilliant. The producer were brilliant. It wasn't just one person. You know, there was a lot of elements. And um, so, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it anytime. Yeah, maybe not all today. But, well, I'd love you know. to. Ha- I'd love to have you back to talk about that sure. sometime.